over the years, uh, I've been called lots of things. Wise, handsome, you get the idea. But mechanical genius is not one of them. Uh, and there's a paradox in that's truth because I love old things. And the reality is old things are always breaking. Uh, I love old houses, but I can't fix anything, so we don't live in an old house. Uh, I collect old sports things, and much to Tasha's delight, I always have an old car in our garage in various stages of disrepair. But here's what's consistent about all those cars. None of them ever run. And that's a true statement. I've got one in my garage right now that does not run, but I'm fixing it up. Uh, I've read a lot on these cars, but, uh, how to, what to look for, and I've even bought and sold some over the past several years. But when it comes to the mechanical aptitude of how to actually fix it, I just, my mind breaks down at that point. I can read about it, but I just can't actually do it. And that's compounded by the fact that I literally don't own any tools. Uh, what I've experienced, if you own tools, you're responsible to use them. No thank you, all right? And so, of all the things I've been accused of, an auto mechanic is not one of them. But here's something that even I know. If the battery is dead, the car is useless. You can take the most beautifully restored car, whatever your dream car is, fill in the blank, and as beautiful as that car may be restored, if the battery is dead, it is functionally useless. So what's it got through the book of James? Well, I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 2 with us. We continue our series because James is making a similar comparison he says, hey, you can claim to have faith, but if that faith isn't accompanied by a life of good works, then, is, uh, then it, practically speaking, it becomes about as useful as a dead battery in the life of a car. And so one of the things he's uh, describing here and leaning into uh, is this idea that somehow that we can possess genuine faith, but it never shows up in a life of good works. One writer claimed this. He said, that's the American gospel where people can claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but not actually have a life that represents actually following him in any practical daily basis. So in James chapter 2, he's going to lean right into that truth in a very direct way that's become characteristic of his style, what we're learning here in the book of James. Matter of fact, he's going to make this, this startling uh, statement. If you don't have a trail of consistent good works, if your life doesn't display the fruit of conversion through a life of good works then what James is going to make the argument today is this, there's a good chance that you're actually self-deceived when it comes to salvation, all right? So, James chapter 2, we're going to look this morning first off at verses 14 down through verse 20. Starts off in verse 14, it says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But some will say, you have faith and I have works, and show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, the title of this series in the book of James, we've titled, is Faith and Works. And the reason we title that uh, series this way is because of this passage. Uh, in the book of James, James is saying, hey, it is essential for the Christian to understand that saving faith 
always produces good works. The word faith is mentioned seven times, and work is used six times. Now, here's what's interesting about this passage. If you study anything in church history, this is a passage that actually has had a fair amount of controversy and debate connected to it. So hopefully we're going to teach it in such a way that it's super clear and everyone gets what James is saying. And we're going to strive to do what the late Bible teacher uh, used to say is let's put the cookies on the bottom shelf where the kids can get them. All right? So here's what I want you to see. A few things in this passage. Uh, what James is challenging us first off is this, is that we should work hard to show evidence of genuine faith. Now, here's the problem. We're so high on grace and we should be that sometimes we're almost down when it comes to the idea of the importance of good works. And so what James is leaning into this morning is this, is that inward faith, true saving faith, inward faith will always produce action according to verse 14. Look back at verse 14. What does he say here? He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And here's the key question. Can that faith save him? And he goes on through the rest of that passage to explain that the answer is absolutely not. He says, if you claim to have faith, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but your life has no tangible evidence of actually following Christ through a life of good works, then that's not saving faith as described here in James chapter 2. To use some theological words, there is no such thing as justification that does not result in a life of sanctification or becoming more like Jesus Christ. Just like a dead battery, James says, this person has a faith that is useless to them, according to verse 17. Now, whenever we talk about works, uh, my experience has been this, is that sometimes we're a little nervous because what we're afraid of is we're going to drift too far into the good works uh, conversation. So let's list off some things here that James is not saying in this passage. He's not saying that the religious activity of a person's life is what saves them. I don't know how many times over the years I've had this conversation with someone who may not be a follower of Jesus Christ in their mind or may not absolutely be a follower of Jesus Christ and somehow there's this cultural gospel that says that at the end of my life I'm going to stand before Jesus and there's going to be some kind of eternal scale and the hope is that all of my good works on this side will outweigh my bad works on this side and the eternal scales will be tipped in my favor. Well, that's not what James is teaching here at all. He's not saying these good works can save a person. What he's saying is this, is that these good works are the actual evidence that, in fact, a person is truly saved. James's big brother, maybe you've heard of him, Jesus. Here's what he said in Matthew chapter 7. Listen to this. He said, you'll recognize them by their fruits. That's a, the tangible display of the works of their life. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Now listen to this, verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You'll recognize them by their fruits. What does it mean that a, a tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire? It's bad news, all right? That's all you need to know. He's talking about eternal separation from God. Whatever we observe in a person's life is what he's describing 
is a window into their soul. And so this idea that a person says, hey, I, I know that I'm saved. I repeated a prayer at VBS, or I walked down an aisle, or I cried at a youth campfire, and, and there's no appetite for anything else outside of that for spiritual, but I know that I'm totally saved is a foreign concept to the New Testament and exactly what James is teaching against here in James chapter 2. Uh, late pastor and Bible scholar Warren Wearsby said it like this. He said, people with dead faith substitute words for deeds. They know the correct vocabulary for prayer and testimony and can even quote the right verses from the Bible, but their walk does not measure up to their talk. They think their words are as good as works, and they are wrong. Now, James wants to illustrate this by giving a very simple illustration. He said, hey, he said, if you go out and someone says, uh, I'm freezing to death, and you just say, hey, bless you, be warm, and be filled, that's not what saving faith does is the example that he's Using Now, maybe that sounds familiar, that little illustration. And the reason it might is because this is because it was illustrated in a Peanuts cartoon. If you don't know what Peanuts are, listen, it's the whole reason the funny papers were created. Amen? Remember back when people used to get newspapers? Remember that? And the comic section came in color? Remember that? You remember this? Some of you did this. Remember you take Silly Putty, you could press it on there and press it somewhere else. Some of you don't know what that is. You're not going to heaven, all right? In heaven, there'll be Silly Putty and comics, full color. And in comics, uh, Peanuts, there was, uh, the illustrator was Charles Schultz, who's the creator of uh, Charlie Brown. And uh, they're all bundled up in one of the Peanuts comics. And uh, Snoopy's out in the cold shivering in front of an empty dog bowl. And so Charlie Brown and Linus are having discussion. Look how sad it is that Snoopy's out there shivering cold. And so they walk outside and say to Snoopy, be of good cheer, Snoopy, and then turn around and go back in. Now, where in the world did Charles Schultz get the idea for that little illustration in Peanuts right here from this passage? He's saying this is not the life that characterizes a true follower of Jesus Christ where you know the right words, you've got the right doctrine in your head, but your life is devoid of practical acts of love and compassion. That is not saving faith, is what he's teaching here. Now, in our quest to do good works, let me show you some things that we have to be careful of. On one end, if we're honest, those of us in conservative Bible teaching churches, theologically conservative, what we think, we hear the idea of good works and soup kitchens and homeless shelters and coat drives and all those kind of things, what we are quick to do sometimes is that's the work of those who are in liberal theology, all compassion and no gospel. And let me just be clear about that. If all you do is feed people and there's no gospel, all you're doing is making sure they're not hungry when they get to hell. But in our churches, churches like teaching the Bible, sometimes we're more like Linus and Charlie Brown than we admit. What you need is the gospel. What you need is Jesus. And all these practical needs, they're shivering out in the cold world. And we're saying, hey, be warm and be blessed and be filled. What James is saying is saving faith is neither of those, but it should include both of those. That we hold high the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're meeting needs and sharing Christ with people. That's what saving faith looks like. James literally says the type of faith that says, I know all the right words. I know all these Bible verses. I have all these doctrinal truths that I 
understand, but it never shows up. It never gets from here to here. He says, that is not saving faith. And so, he says, often that's a false assurance of salvation. Even the Pharisees could quote to you the letters of the Scripture, but Jesus said, hey, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside and dead as can be inside. So the first truth he's challenging with us when it comes to saving faith is we should work hard to show the evidence of saving faith. But the second thing uh, we see in this passage uh, falls in the category of false assurances. And so I would argue this, the second truth in this passage is this, is that when it comes to conversion, we should trust the evidence, not the experience. Several years ago, this was a long time ago, many, many years ago, Tasha and I were uh, there's someone that she was friends with from school, and this person was not a follower of Jesus Christ, and, and they told us, they said, hey, I, I think I got saved. I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, I don't know. I was at a church service, and they said, hey, if you want to go to heaven, come forward. And everybody, all these people came forward, and so I felt like I should go forward. And I'm crying. They're crying at the end. I went back to my seat. I think I might have gotten saved. I was incredibly emotional. And we hear that story, and we think, well, who in the world would do that? Listen, we can be very guilty of that sometimes in producing this idea that somehow the gospel and conversion is reduced down to an emotional experience. I had a conversation with someone one time. They said, I'm just so concerned about this person. They don't have any desire to study the scripture. They don't have any desire or appetite to go to church. They don't have any desire to worship or any of those kinds of things. And I'm just so concerned because I know that they're a Christian. And I asked them, I said, well, why do you think that person's a Christian? They said, because I was there when they gave their life to Christ and they cried. And I know it had to be sincere. Listen, I've cried in the drive through line, but that doesn't make me a Christian. Amen? I told someone last night, I said, I don't have road rage. I, I don't. I'm pretty calm on the road. I've got drive through rage. Amen? Like, I spent time in line, I gave very detailed, here's the sauce that I want to open up that bag, I can get angry real quick. James is saying, he says, hey, here's an extreme illustration that an intellectual belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ and even an emotional response to the person and work of Jesus Christ is not the same as saving faith. He said, where's the illustration? Look at verses 18 and verse 19. In verse 18 and 19, he says, but someone will say, you have faith and, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Listen to verse 19. You believe, intellectual belief, that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, so there's intellectual response, and they shudder. There's an emotional response. Now, we don't talk a lot about demons sometimes, and I think that's to our own detriment. But the early church... They would have witnessed up close the power of demonic activity. And James uses a shock value and says, hey, listen, when I'm trying to teach you about the nature of saving faith, if your only assurance is that you believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you believe that Jesus was the Son of God, you believe that he's all these things that he claims to be, then even the demons believe those things. He says if you even have an emotional reaction to spiritual things, he says, even the demons at the name and work and person and power of Jesus Christ, even they shudder or tremble at his name. What do we know about demons? What well, they believe intellectually. Here's the interesting thing about demons. Demons are neither atheists or agnostics. 
They're fully convinced about the nature of God. They're fully convinced about the power of Jesus Christ. They believe in the deity of Christ. Mark chapter 5, it says they recognize Jesus as the rightful judge. But yet no one's arguing that a demon is going to spend eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ despite their intellectual agreement with the personal work of Jesus and despite their emotional response at his power and his person. You've all probably heard of the church camp where they get all the kids all worked up and talk about hell all week and then at the end of it they say, hey, if you're here and you don't want to go to hell, would you just raise your hand and get them all stirred up emotionally? Maybe you've sat through some of those services. But let me just describe to you something. Not wanting to go to hell is not the same thing as surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. I've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of spiritual conversations with people over the years. And in all of that time, I've never met a single person who had a desire to go to the smoking section when it came to eternity. But that's not the same thing as conversion. If you're listening, say amen. Heaven is not a place for people who don't want to go to hell. Heaven is a place for people who love God, and that's not just semantics. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't, hey, pray this prayer and you'll get some fire insurance. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as proclaimed in the gospel of Mark, says this, if any man desires to be my disciple... Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so, the idea that somehow I can agree, I've had people tell me over the years, oh, I totally believe all that stuff about Jesus. I don't have any problem with Jesus. I totally believe he was the Son of God. I totally believe that he died on the cross. I totally believe that he died and was raised. I believe all the, I agree with all of those things. But even the demons believe and even the demons tremble is what James says. And so intellectual belief and emotional stirring is not the same as saving faith is what he's describing here. And so the third challenge you want to see this morning is this, is don't be afraid of good works. In our quest to understand the Apostle Paul when he taught that salvation is through faith alone, sometimes... We're very hesitant to talk about good works because we see good works as the opposite of grace. What, what James is saying, or not grapes, did I say grapes? Good works is the opposite of grapes, write that down. The opposite of grace, but what James is saying is, no, these things are linked together. You cannot separate these things. That a person whose life has been transformed by grace, the evidence that it was genuine, is a life of good works or obedience or serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what's interesting. Often, in the battle to preserve grace, which is worthy, uh, we'll quote Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, For by grace you're saved, not of works, uh, lest anyone should boast. We know all that from Ephesians 2 and 8 and 9. You know what verse 10 says? So that we're created to do good works is what verse 10 says. Listen to this gold from Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, what it says. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, He saved us, listen to this, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. So here's what He just said, let me pause here. What He just said is if you're here and you think, I'm going to heaven because this good life I've lived, these good works that I've accumulated, 
Verse 5 in Titus 3 says, that's not a place to put your hope. So he says he saves us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So he's clearly teaching, hey, this is how salvation works. It's solely the mercy of God in your life. It's nothing you've done to earn it. You didn't stack up enough good works. But he says this in verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. Here it is. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now go back with James chapter 2, verse 20, down through verse 24, and look how James phrases it. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, he's not mincing words here, that faith apart from works is useless? And he gives a couple illustrations here. He says, was Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered, or was not, uh, Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Then he goes on in verses 25 and 26 and gives the uh, illustration of Rahab the prophet, how she's justified by faith. Now, can we just be honest? If the only verses you've ever read in all of your life to try to understand the gospel and salvation were these verses, in verses 20 down through verse 24, that at face value, you might be left to conclude that in fact, good works is how a person is justified before God. That word justification, it's a big word. It does not mean just as if I've never sinned. What it means, it's a legal term. And it means a new standing before God is what justified means. And so the idea is here like, you know, I was uh, apart from Christ and I was guilty and then now I've received Christ and so I'm not guilty. It's just as if I've never sinned. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean guilty and now not guilty. It means guilty, still guilty, but praise God, pardoned. That's what it means. And so in these verses, what it sounds like he's saying is that the pardon I receive is connected to the works that I have done. And so these verses have been a source of debate and confusion for hundreds of years. Uh, here's a little church history fact. As a matter of fact, this little passage of Scripture. How many of you have ever heard of a guy named Martin Luther? Anybody ever heard of Martin Luther? Yeah, kind of famous guy in church history. Martin Luther, because the whole book of James he felt was contrary to what Paul was teaching about grace, and particularly he had problems with this passage. Here's what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther concluded, I don't think the book of James should even be in the Bible. I'm going to argue there's a better way to wrestle with these verses than to tear them out of the Bible, okay? And so, how do we wrestle with this? These truths. Well, let's go back to what we know. James chapter 1, he's already described that salvation is a gift. And then he holds up for them. This incredible patriarch of the faith, he says, look at the life of Abraham. And so if I go back and study the scriptures, what do I know about the life of Abraham? Well, if I go all the way back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, 
If I start reading in Genesis chapter 15, what I learn is that Abraham is justified or made right with God based on his faith. Now, what are the Old Testament saints saved in if Christ hasn't came yet? They're saved by their faith and the promise of the coming of the Messiah. So they're saved looking forward to the cross. We're saved looking backwards to the cross. And in Genesis chapter 15, it clearly says that Abraham is justified by his faith alone. But then, in Genesis chapter 22, God puts a test to Abraham's faith to see if it's genuine. And what the test is, is, hey, you know that son Isaac that you've been waiting on for a long time, and he's the promise, the line of Messiah is going to come through him, and yeah, Ishmael's great, but this is the one you've been waiting on. Remember that son Isaac that you just treasure? He says, I want to test and see how genuine your faith is. And so he asks for something radical. He says, hey, if your faith in me is genuine, then lay Isaac up on the altar and be willing to sacrifice him on my behalf. Now, when we hear that, there's a little shock value in that, right? But let me just tell you this. If you've ever had preschoolers or teenagers, it's not that shocking. Amen? You've thought it. Admit it, right? Take that 15-year-old talking back. I'm just going to offer you up as a sacrifice to God today. That's how much I love Jesus. And so, what he's saying here, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand this, to recognize that chapter 22 comes after chapter 15. So what does that mean? That his justification or right standing before God described in chapter 15 is before he tied Isaac to the altar in chapter 22. And so one is, this is the nature of faith, saving faith, chapter 15, this is the proof that in fact, what you said you believed, in fact, you really believed, you don't know how that story ends, like, oh my gosh, that's a crazy story, like how that ends is God provides a sacrifice and all's well that ends well in that. But here's the point, Abraham's offering of Isaac demonstrated the genuineness of his faith. He was declared righteous by a decree in verse 15, and his life or good works followed suit in verse or chapter 22 of Genesis. Look again at verse 22. What's it say in James chapter 2? He said, you see that faith was active, referring to Abraham's faith, along with his works, and faith was completed by his Works. Now, what, what's he mean? Because that's confusing. What he's describing there, if you use an illustration, he says a fruit tree hasn't accomplished its full purpose until fruit has been produced. So Tosh and I were out of town this week, and uh, we, I was at a workshop, and she went with me, and, and she said, hey, this is the place, the Cove, the Billy Graham Training Center, and, and so there at a workshop, she said, we've been here so many times, we kind of do the same thing over and over, and she said, I'm going to pick some different things out. I said, whatever you want to do, I said, you're, you know, whatever you want to do, I'm totally supportive of that. So she said, here's the itinerary for the day. And so on the itinerary, she said, let's go pick apples. And I'm thinking, we're driving by Whole Foods or Publix, amen? And we went to a real apple orchard. Let me just uh, fill in the blank for those of you who are considering that. Lame-o, all right? <laughs> and so we go to this apple orchard and... There's all these boxes of these incredible apples. Like, I'm like, oh, that looks so good. That <laughs> looks so good. She said, no, it's not as good if you don't pick it off the tree yourself. Lame-o, all right? And so we go out there, listen, it's a total deception. 
we go out there, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to, and I literally study. I'm like, that looks good. I'm going to pick it here. And this is the setup. They even had all these apple samples they had cut up. And I'm taking it, and I'm like writing down in my mind, like, oh, I'm going to pick that one, pick that one, pick that one. <laughs> and we get out there, and we're walking, and we're walking, and we're walking. There's one kind of apple. The only apple you can pick is Fuji apples. You know what's good about Fuji apples? You should always cook them in olive oil. You know why? Because it's easier to scrape into the trash. Amen? <laughs> I'm not bitter, though. I'm just sharing. Just sharing. Now, so there was deception there. And I'm praying God's judgment on that orchard. I just want to share that openly. But here's what's even worse. Can you imagine walking out there? We paid $15 for a bag of apples. It's ridiculous. That I opened up later on a trip and all of them spilled onto the street. That's a true story. <laughs> right in the street. Can you imagine paying $15? And these people built this whole business and going out to this apple orchard and there's not one apple on a single tree? And you would say, well, the... That this tree hasn't fully accomplished its purpose until it's produced fruit. That's the illustration that James is giving. He's saying that saving faith inside of a person hasn't accomplished the full scope of its purpose until it shows up in a life of good works. Quite simply, a changed heart always produces a changed life. That's a good place for an amen. You missed it. Let me repeat that. A changed heart always produces a changed life. Say that with me. A changed heart always produces a changed life. One more time with Pentecostal power. A changed heart always produces a changed life. Paul Tripp in his devotion this past Wednesday from New Morning Mercies said this. He said, true biblical faith is always something that you live. If your faith doesn't not reshape your life, it's not true faith. And so what's James teaching? He said, genuine salvation always produces good works. And so when a person has no appetite for the things of God, the work of God, the word of God, the worship of God, fellowshipping with the people of God, that's a clear indicator that person does not know God or his son. That's what he's describing. Now, you say, hey, we're... Walk through the text kind of quickly, and we're going to get out early. Uh, not so, all right? So when we talk about good works, what are some of the good works that we're describing here? Well, I'm actually going to let Jesus answer this. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus paints a picture of what it looks like when he returns in glory in the last day. And here's what he says in Matthew 25. He says, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. And then he gives a descriptor of what these kingdom people, what their life looked like on earth. This is Jesus talking. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then Jesus' people responded and say, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you and when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, 
you did it to me. And so what's Jesus saying here? That a life of good works will always include ministry to the marginalized. Always. It's not limited to those things, but it never excludes feeding the poor, clothing naked, visiting those in prison. That's exactly what Jesus was saying here in this passage. And we look back at that, and sometimes we're clicking, so what those people need is the gospel and repentance. Yes, they do. But we demonstrate the gospel so that we have an opportunity to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't gloss over the fact in verses 15 and 16. Go back to James 2, verses 15 and 16. And look at what he says. The only illustration he actually gives. He's just preaching good works and broad categories as the evidence of saving faith. But he does provide one illustration of what type of good works would characterize a true follower of Jesus Christ. And it's the only one he gives in this passage. So what's he say in verse 15 and verse 16? Uh, Here's what he says. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So so don't, don't gloss over this. And this makes everybody in the room uncomfortable, including me. What Jesus is saying is this, is that a follower of Jesus Christ, a true follower of Jesus Christ, is always moved with compassion to the poor. Always. And sometimes, I've heard preach sometimes, particularly those who are serving in different foreign mission fields, that somehow the wealth and resources in this country are a sin. Listen, it's not a sin to have resources. Look at some of those faithful people in the Bible that had people of resources. So the issue is not what resources I have. The issue is how am I stewarding those resources to impact people with the gospel? And so the question I wrestled this week that all of us should wrestle with is this. What does ministry to the poor in our life look like? Now here's our deep conviction that ministry to the poor has to be connected to the local church as the only God-ordained missions agency in the New Testament. Doesn't mean we forbid other ones. Our whole missions book is filled with partnerships. We're all for that. But through the local church, God expects Christians who have covenanted together to disciple and evangelize and have compassionate ministry to those who are marginalized. So listen, shameless plug right here. Shameless plug. Uh, your gift and missions offering this year, that's why 100% of it is going to our mission campus in Middletown. People battling poverty and homeless, connected to the local church, living in covenant community, being shepherded by Pastor Michael and the work that's going on there, 100% of the offering. So if you say, I don't know what that looks like in my life, then listen, shameless plug, give generously to the missions offering this year and invest in the lives of those who are marginalized. Poverty is always going to be with us. Jesus himself said this, the poor you will always have with you. That's what Jesus said. And I trust Jesus more than any politician. I hope you do. No politician, no no party is going to eradicate poverty because Jesus said the poor you'll always have with you. But here's the reality what the New Testament says. There is no such thing as a true Christian who does not exercise compassion towards the poor. And we get into all these political conversations, say, well, the goal of poverty and take care of Martin, that's never the government's responsibility, and so blah, blah, those kind of things. The Bible never teaches that. And so what happens is we say, that's not the government's responsibility. That was the church's responsibility in the New Testament. Guess who the church is? It's us. And so what we can't sit back and say 
is, hey, the government shouldn't be involved in helping the poor. The church should be that when we're the church. And so what does it look like? Ministry of the poor and the marginalized. And it's the only example of a good work that Jesus gives, or James gives, in this passage. So hear me clearly. Compassion that moves us to the action on behalf of the poor and marginalized is a mark of saving faith. Why? Because the ability to show love to those who cannot love us back in tangible ways is what makes us different from the world. We get it right when people know that we're against sin, but we're for people, especially marginalized people. So maybe you're here this morning, you're saying, you know what, I don't know what that looks like in my life, and I've not been involved in a lot of compassion, good works towards those who are marginalized. Here's the good news of the gospel of grace. You can start today. You can say, Lord, I want this to look like and be like a part of my life because I belong to Jesus, and this was part of the heart of Jesus is taking those who are low and marginalized and lifting them up with the gospel of grace. And maybe you've come to a place and say, you know what? If I'm honest this morning, even though I come to church, I can't say with integrity that my life gives evidence, if I were on trial, that my life gives evidence that I have genuine saving faith, that it's a lot of intellectual agreement, that even some emotional experiences, but I wouldn't say the pattern of my life is a life of good works. Here's the good news of the gospel for you as well today. You can receive Jesus Christ today. Today is the day of salvation is what the Bible says. And so let me give you an opportunity right now to do that very thing. Would you bow your heads this morning? Your head bows this morning. If you're here and you say, you know what? I don't know that I have genuine saving faith in my life. I made a profession of faith. I walked down an aisle. I had an emotional experience. I, I'd certainly agree intellectually with all the things the Bible says. But when I do what the Bible says and examine myself to see if I'm of the faith, if I'm honest, there's not a consistent pattern of following Jesus as evidenced by good works. If that's you today, would you, right now, why in the world would you live in the limbo of I'm not sure if I'm saved when right now you can confess your sins, repent of them, and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Would you do that right now? Right in your seat, you can be saved. Would you pray right now by faith and say, Lord, I, I don't know if I belong to you. I made a profession of faith. It was emotional. But Lord, today... I do confess my sins. I do have a desire to repent or turn from them. And I receive Jesus Christ alone today for the forgiveness of my sins. Would you pray and do that right now? Would you pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior right now? For those of you who know you're saved and have a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, would you just, would you just pray a prayer right now that quite frankly can interrupt your life. Would you just pray right now, Lord, among all the good works that I want to display for your glory, God, give me a heart for people who are marginalized. 
God, I repent of the prideful attitude that says, well, if those folks would just work harder and be more responsible, then they would escape that. God, give me a heart of compassion for those who are marginalized. God, help me to love people who cannot tangibly love me in return oftentimes because that's exactly what Jesus did for me in saving me. Father, I pray that as we encounter the truths of the text here, James chapter 2, God, I pray that we would be so transformed by these truths that we would walk out of here fully convinced that faith alone saves us in the grace of God and the gospel. But God, also deeply convinced that a life of good works brings glory to you, assurance to us, and it impacts others. And so God, I pray that we leave today transformed to the point where the people who encounter Liberty Heights Church members would say this, no one's ever shown me love like those people have. And God made that love to extend to those who we disagree with politically, those who have different sexual orientations, those who are battling addiction, those who are in the throes of poverty, regardless of why. May we model the gospel and love people who cannot often love us in return, because that's exactly what you did for us you saved us. God, we're grateful for the hope of the gospel. It literally changes the world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.